It's good to be with you all. Extend you a very warm welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and a very warm welcome to our visitors and our old friends with us today. Very glad for you to be gathered with us. And as we continue in our worship, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, as we continue our exposition of John's Gospel. John chapter 6, and we will focus on verses 16 through 21. John chapter 6, focusing on verses 16 through 21, let's begin in verse 16 together. Let us hear the Word of God. Now when evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let's unite our hearts and pray for God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the gift of Your Word. We thank You that You have given to us in our language the Holy Scriptures, the bread of life, the Word which gives Your people eternal life. We thank You that You have given us Your Word which speaks to us good tidings of the gift of Your Son. Father, we confess that had You left us in darkness, we would not know You savingly. We would know You enough to be condemned for our unbelief, but we would not know the way of salvation through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank You that You have been so merciful to us as a people in our land that we have the Scriptures in our language, that we have the testimony that You have recorded of the glories of Your Son, the person and work of Christ in behalf of sinners. Father, we thank You for the Gospel of John in which we peculiarly see so much of the majesty of Christ. We see His eternal glory His equality with You, Father. His condescension in becoming flesh and displaying to us the glories of God in the flesh. Calling to sinners and inviting sinners to trust Him that they may have eternal life. Father, thank You for Your Son. He is our only hope. He is the grounds of all of our hope and all of our assurance. It is by His life and His death and His resurrection that we have confidence that we will not come into judgment, but rather will see and experience eternal life. Father, we pray that You would strengthen Your church this morning through the reading and the teaching of Your Word. We pray for Your Spirit to apply Your Word to our hearts as we're instructed. 
as these 12 disciples were instructed, we pray that we also would learn the lessons. And Father, we pray for any here this morning who are strangers to Christ, who are outside of the new covenant, who do not know the assurance and the hope of eternal life through Christ. We pray that, Father, today, by Your Spirit, You would awaken them, that You would raise them from death to life, that You would open deaf ears and blind eyes to see the glories of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Be our teacher, Father, we pray. We pray that none would leave here unaffected and unchanged by Your Word, but that we would receive it with humility, that we would heed it, that we would obey it. Draw near to us, we pray. Bless Your church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to... Uh, be, I'll begin this morning with the usual... Uh, pattern and outline that I've been using as we go through the Gospel of John. We'll begin with our exposition of the passage, and then secondly, move into our doctrinal instruction from the passage, and then thirdly, we will close with application from the passage. And so let's, let's begin with our exposition, and it's at this point, especially if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to have it open to John chapter 6 so that you can lay your own eyes upon what God is saying to you this morning. Let's begin in verse 16 of John chapter 6. John begins this new section, still connected to what's come before, but a new section, now when evening came. And that connects us in with what we considered last week. This is still the same day as the feeding of the 5,000. Christ's power and His kindness is fresh on these disciples' mind. And it says, when evening came, His disciples went down to the sea got into the boat, and went over the sea to Capernaum. Now, when we take Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel and their account of this, uh, this miracle, when we take those together with John's Gospel, we get more insight into the dynamics here. Uh, for instance, both Matthew and Mark tell us that the disciples do this, they get into the boat, at the command of Jesus. So Matthew 14.22 and Mark 6.45 says Jesus literally constrained them to get into the boat and to go across to the other side towards Capernaum while He stayed behind in order to dismiss the crowds and to go into the mountain to pray. Now, that raises the question, why did Jesus send the disciples ahead of Him? One reason that I think is very likely, though not explicitly stated, is that Jesus dismissed the disciples in order to prevent them from themselves joining in the frenzy of the crowd seeking to make Jesus king. You remember that's what we considered last time is the crowd wanting to take Jesus by force to make Him king. So I think it's very possible that Jesus does this to remove them from that temptation. But there's another divinely inspired reason that we're given in Mark chapter 6, verse 52. After the disciples go out on the sea and they are fearful, and after Jesus comes to them on the water, Mark comments that the disciples, in verse 52 of Mark 6, he comments that the disciples were, quote, astounded because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. In other words, the Lord sending the disciples away without Him 
is not merely for practical reasons, but is Christ again testing His disciples, knowing that they had not learned the lesson of the loaves and the feeding of the 5,000. Right? His power and His sufficiency and His dependability that He showed when He fed those crowds had not yet sunk down deep enough into their hearts. So Jesus has another test for them. And so, they obey the Lord. They get into the boat and they begin to head across the sea to or toward Capernaum, which in case you're, you're wondering about the geography of that, Capernaum is still on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, but more on the west side. And then moving on, um, John says, and it was dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Verse 18, then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Okay, so picture the scene. Here they are. They are obeying the command of the Lord while He remains in the mountain praying, no doubt praying for His disciples. And yet, they are entering into trouble. They're entering into trial, temptation. That's very important for us to note as Christians. Their path here is not the path of Jonah in which they are sailing in utter rebellion against the command of God going in the opposite direction, but rather they are in the way of duty and they are perfectly within the will of God here. And yet the Lord has ordained trouble for them. That's instructive for Christians. Peril and affliction in this life are not necessarily God's disciplinary rod for His children's disobedience. Sometimes it is. We read that in other passages. But not necessarily, and not here with these disciples. Nor are perils and afflictions ever contrary to the love and care of the Lord Jesus Christ and His intercession for His people. As we'll see later, Jesus is praying for them while this is going on. Neither are peril and affliction evidences to the children of God that we are enemies of God, but rather they are perfectly agreeable, listen Christian, they are perfectly agreeable to our being in a state of grace. Just as these disciples are. Notice the details John gives. He says, first of all, it was dark. Now first of all, that's a physical description of what the disciples are experiencing. And that you have to picture what it would be like in this day on a boat, not a large boat probably, on the stormy sea of Galilee, which could be very, very tumultuous in a storm, and it's dark. That highlights the danger and the uncertainty that they were in. They, they are at the mercy, as it were, of the raging sea without clear visibility of the shoreline or what exactly is going on around them. So that's the first thing darkness means. But secondly, I suspect John uses this word in somewhat of a double meaning to teach us darkness is also a fitting description of the many perils that God's people face. Right? Trials feel dark to us. Indeed, that's why they're often described that way in the Old Testament. In particular, I think of the Psalms. They are often described as darkness. When the people of God embark, as it were, into trial, into tribulation, they feel in the dark to many things. 
They feel in the dark as to the cause of the trials. Lord, why? They also oftentimes feel in the dark as to the design of these trials. Lord, what is this teaching me? And they often feel in the dark as to the way through the trials. And John adds, and Jesus had not come to them. John highlights this fact on purpose. This reality of the disciples being apart from the Lord here. Jesus had not yet come to them. They were alone. Not really. He's in the mountain praying for them. But in this sense, they were alone. Vulnerable and weak. And that is the great aggravation for the Christian. Isn't it? The great aggravation for the Christian who's known Christ, who's known what it is to, as it were, walk upon the heights of the blessedness of knowing communion with Christ, the great aggravation for us is not merely the weight of the trials themselves, but feeling the absence of Christ when we feel we need Him most. And though we know, because we've been instructed, we know intellectually Christ will never leave me nor forsake me, We know that His Spirit will never utterly leave us, and yet we feel alone. And it can feel that way for a very, very long time. Indeed, trials have a peculiar way of making that absence of the Lord feel like an eternity at times. Psalm 88 is a psalm that describes that feeling. Psalm 88 is one of those psalms I don't know how you would say it. Many, many Christians, genuine Christians, probably don't quite know what to do with it. Because Psalm 88 is among, as far as, my, at least to my knowledge, I think the only psalm that does not end on any kind of high note of hope or praise. That there is no happy resolution. But rather, it is through and through a prayer, a solemn prayer of the downcast soul. And I think that's on purpose because in being that way, it paints for us a very realistic picture and relatable picture of how the Christian often feels at certain seasons in his life. Right? In the midst of storms, as it were, trials, the Christian doesn't just always feel like, yeah, tomorrow I'm just going to be soaring on smooth and glassy seas. But rather, it often feels like I don't know when the Lord is going to return to me. And and it feels like it's been so long since the Lord came to me. Has the Lord forgotten His servant? Psalm 88, I'll just give you an example. You can read it later. 6 and 7. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and You overwhelm me with all Your waves. I imagine that's something both physically and spiritually, that's something of the way the disciples feel here. And then in verse 19 and 20, the Lord's timely approach. The Lord's timely approach. Verse 19, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, obviously the Holy Spirit, if He had wanted, could have given us the exact measurement that's left here to the estimation of the human author, such as part of the nature of the Scriptures. But when they had rowed about three or four miles, now keep in mind, this was a hard and arduous three three or four miles. 
John doesn't give us as much details as the other Gospel writers on this. But they are laboring and toiling at sea until the fourth watch of the night. Laboring against wind and against sea, not knowing when or if the Lord would come to them, and that yet they just continued doing what they could. And then suddenly, hope enters the story. Now, they didn't immediately recognize it as their hope, as we'll see, but they soon would. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat. Now, there are some, some of you have maybe read some of these types of commentaries, there are some who want to rid the New Testament of anything supernatural. And by the way, if you try to do that, you're basically left with nothing of a New Testament. And there have been some who have suggested that what's really happening here is that Jesus is just wading out into a very shallow, swampy part of the sea, and it just looked to the disciples like Jesus was walking upon the water. Like that's John's point, that the disciples really are struggling in just six inches of water, they just didn't realize it, and here comes Jesus to you know, tell them such. Obviously not John's point. They are obviously in the depth of the sea, as by the way is emphasized in the other Gospels when Peter gets out of the boat, you remember? walks on water with Jesus and he begins to sink. That's kind of proof against the fact that they're, they're not in you know, six inches of water. They are in the depth of the sea here. Human effort has, is getting them nowhere. It seems hope is lost and suddenly the Lord comes to them walking upon the water. Now that demonstrates for us many things. I'm going to give you just three briefly. Number one, it demonstrates His deity and His power and control over the realm of nature. He who made the seas can easily walk upon the seas. He who made the natural laws, so to speak, who govern, that govern this world, is not Himself bound by those natural laws. This is how God often appears to His people in ways that defy nature. You remember God appearing to Moses in a burning bush, and yet what? The bush is not consumed. And so Jesus comes to them in the middle of the sea, not on a boat, not tired, not swimming, but walking upon the water as though upon dry land. And I think Him walking upon the water signifies to us that He is the one who stands in authority over the water. You think about the the themes we'll see as we move on in the chapter, the contrast between Moses and Jesus, and Jesus being the bread from heaven. I think that's introduced here as we see a contrast and a greater Moses in the sense that Moses was the human servant and instrument by which God parted the Red Sea. Jesus is God's Son who walks upon the sea and has authority over the sea. That's the first thing it demonstrates. Second thing it demonstrates that must not be missed by us is it demonstrates the care that Christ has for His people, especially in their distress. It demonstrates for us that Christ will not utterly forsake or cast off His people. Think about that, Christian. Very simple truth. But one of the most bedrock foundational things the Christian can remember in suffering and affliction and trial that though the Lord Jesus may leave His people for a season 
to the darkness and the fears of their own hearts, even as it was with these disciples into the fourth watch of the night. Yet that does not mean that He has forgotten us. And it does not mean that His steadfast love and His faithfulness have fallen to the ground. Rather, it means that He is loving us best and will come to our aid in His good timing. Third thing this coming to them on the water demonstrates, it demonstrates that Jesus is not hindered by any earthly obstacle to reveal Himself to His people. Whether it's these disciples here at night in the middle of the sea, whether it's the Apostle John banished to the island of Patmos in exile towards the end of his life, whether it's Paul imprisoned, Jesus can and will come to His people when and how He pleases to comfort them and give them peace. But before they realize, the disciples, before they realize the comfort of this appearance, it says, and they were afraid. Now I think, in a sense, they're doubly afraid. They were already afraid of the storm. They're afraid of the winds. And now, even at the sight of their deliverance, they're afraid. Because they don't understand what is happening. And I think that's what's one of the connections to the feeding of the 5,000 that we considered two weeks ago is just as the five loaves and the two fish left them confused as to how they were going to feed this crowd, so here it seems too that Jesus coming to them on the sea to their rescue was among the last things that they thought would happen to them. Indeed, the other Gospels tell us that they would sooner believe that it's a ghost come to them than it was Jesus come to them. But Jesus calms their fears with a word. Verse 20, But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Now Christian, you've got to put yourself in the situation of these disciples in order to appreciate the glory and the comfort that those words would have brought. It is I. This is one of the I am statements of the Gospel of John. It doesn't get translated in in many translations that way here. It is I. I am. The I am is with you. It's reminiscent of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8 that if God be for us, who can be against us? When Christ is present with the believer, present to do them good, present in His willingness to help them and come to their aid, the Christian's heart is put at ease. Even if the storms, the trials are not immediately put at peace, the knowledge that God is for me, right? the knowledge that even if this ends in my death, which is basically the worst thing that can happen to us in this life, right? The Christian knows that if Christ is with me and God before me in Christ, I have nothing to fear. Because death is a conquered enemy. It's just a pathway that brings me to Christ. And therefore, no matter what comes, when I hear the words and believe by faith, it is I, do not be afraid, I can genuinely in my heart be at peace. Verse 21 then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately, immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. This is a 
an extraordinary event. We'll see a couple more of these in the Gospel of John. The, the way John communicates it, at least, is that the moment Jesus enters the boat in a supernatural way, they are immediately at the place, the shore to which they were going. And I think part of the purpose of that is to show them and to show us for whom this is recorded to demonstrate to us that when Christ is with us, He will see us through to our destination. And not only that, but that the trials themselves will seem but a blink when we have the knowledge and the fellowship of Christ with us. Matthew Henry quotes, he says, "...the power and presence of the church's King shall expedite and facilitate her deliverance and conquer the difficulties which have baffled the skill and industry of all her other friends. Well, let's turn our attention to our doctrinal instruction this morning. That's the exposition. Something of what's happening in the passage, what the passage means. Now let's turn to our doctrinal section. How we are instructed, Christian, from the lessons contained in this passage about how we should think about God, how we should think about the Christian life. And what I've done this morning, instead of having two or three different doctrinal applications, I want to open up four things that this narrative teaches us as it relates to the trials of God's children. So all four of them are connected to that subject of how God deals with His children in trial. And these are Christian. These are four things that the Christian ought to store up in his heart for the day, and the day is coming when trial comes. So four things, and I'll give them to you each as we go. Number one, doctrinal instruction. This entire sequence of events here is orchestrated by the Lord Himself. Okay? This entire sequence of events is orchestrated by the Lord Jesus Himself. Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. We saw that in chapter 2. He knew what was in the heart of His disciples and He knew that they had not learned the lesson of the loaves, as Mark 6 tells us. He had tested them earlier in the day. Philip, Andrew, how will we feed this crowd? You remember verse 6 said He was testing them. And when they failed that test, He was gracious and He demonstrated to them again the wonders of His power. He showed them what they already should have remembered and known about the Lord. And yet, the lesson was not impressed upon them as it ought to have been. And Christian, before we turn our nose up at them and look down upon them as though we would have done so much better, we are exactly the same in the way that we see how often the Lord's mighty works in our behalf, how many answers to prayer, and yet we are quick to forget. And so the Lord puts them to another test. Armed with the fresh memory of His power and goodness from earlier in the day, He sends them out to the lake knowing full well that they are headed that He is sending them into the storm. Christian, that is vital for us to see and to understand. This is not something that the Bible at all seeks to hide or blushes about. God is the One who tests His people for their good. 
God is the one who tests His people for their holiness. For the development of their character. Right? You think of the example of the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 4. Who was it that led the Lord Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? It was the Holy Spirit who led Him there. To mature Him, obviously not to bring Him from a place of sin to obedience, but to mature Him from a place of immature, untested obedience to mature obedience. That was the Holy Spirit's doing. Or you think of Job. When Satan comes to Job with the intent to destroy Job's faith, or at least to attempt to do so, who does he seek permission from? The Lord. Job doesn't try to hide that. It's right there in the first chapter that God is the one who says, have you considered My servant Job? Christian, I know know you know this, but it's good to be reminded. Satan, as powerful of a foe as he is for us, Satan and demons are not ultimately in charge of what befalls God's people. God may use various secondary means, whether they be demonic, whether they be worldly influence, whether they be things like natural disaster and calamity, but standing above all of those things is the One who loves us is the One who is testing us. Orchestrating every single detail of every single trial of His people. And Christian, that's good news. I know there are some who hear that and they think that seems to get God in a whole lot of trouble. What does that mean about God being the author of sin? Are you saying that God tempts us? We can talk about that another time. God is not the author of sin. And God tempts nobody. But Christian, this is good news. And we don't need to try to get God off the hook. Because think about it. What better alternative can you think of than to know that the One who loves us and will never forsake us is the one who tests us. Because think of the alternative. If you believe that the devil is running the show, there's no comfort there. Because the devil's heart is full of cruelty and hatred and rage. His intent is to kill and destroy and to destroy the faith of God's people. If you were to tell these disciples that they're simply at the mercy of unthinking natural forces like wind and water, that's no comfort. Because winds and water don't operate out of infinite wisdom. Christian, God Himself, the all-wise One, the One who will not let us go by covenant is the One who tests us. And that's good news. Because He ordains the trials of our life for our good and for our growth and for our instruction and godliness. That's the first thing. The Lord is the one behind this orchestrating this. Second doctrinal instruction. God often brings His people to the point of despair before making known His power to them. God often brings His people to the point of despair before making known His power. In fact, God even brings His people beyond the point that we think we will despair. 
2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers. He's saying, Christians, don't, don't be ignorant of this. Regarding our trouble, he says, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure and above strength so that we despaired even of life. So much for the slogan that God will never give you more than you can handle. Right? You think about that. Some of these things should just be so easily dismissed out of hand by thinking Christians. I don't know how they get a foothold. If God never gave us more than we could handle, we wouldn't have any need of God. <laughs> of course God gives us more than we can handle. But often, like these disciples, God's people find themselves burdened and pressed to the point where it seems the darkness will not lift. And we cry out, How long, Lord? And He doesn't come. And we cry again and we pray more. How long, Lord? And He still doesn't come. I already mentioned this. I'll mention it here because it has application. The other Gospels mention, John doesn't tell us this, that Jesus could actually see them. He saw their toiling from the mountain. Whether that was by physical sight or by some unique revelation to Him, I'm, I'm not sure. But the Lord knew what was going on, and yet He did not come to them until the fourth watch of the night. And we ask why. Could not God be gracious without all the discomfort of waiting and all this, the painful suspense that comes with that? Sure, God could. But God often... I would say more often than not, makes us wait upon Him while He waits in His coming. And by the way, Christian, sometimes it's a lesson that has to be learned the hard way. No amount of kicking and screaming from our unbelief is going to change that. Why does God wait? I'll give you three things, just briefly. Number one, God often waits to deliver His people until the last hour, as it were, Number one, so that His deliverance would appear to us all the more evident. You think about it. Think about the praise that is given from your heart to God when He rescues you in the eleventh hour as compared to the praise when He rescues you in the first. The eleventh hour praise outshouts the first hour. Right? Why? Because it is by that delay that we have come to a sense of our own helplessness. And that the only deliverance here is if the Lord is my help and fights for me. Otherwise, when the Lord rescues us quickly, we're often just not even cognizant of His mercies. We often just pass right over them. Secondly, the Lord waits that His hand of deliverance would be all the more appreciated by us. This is related to the first, obviously. Even small mercies that God shows us is worthy of our thanksgiving, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. But delayed deliverances often elicit overwhelming praise from the depth of our being. Thirdly, the Lord waits that we may become disappointed by all earthly hopes 
so that our plans may be frustrated and so that our only hope for deliverance would come from the Lord. I was thinking about uh, this week, Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea and the events that led through that, some of the wanderings before they came to the Red Sea. And in Exodus, um, what is it? I'm going to forget the chapter now. I didn't write it down. Anyway, it's not important. You can Google it later and find it. Um, I've got verse 14 written here and I forgot to put the chapter. The Israelites, they've fled Egypt, they fled Pharaoh, and they haven't been brought into safety. And here they are, they're cornered on the bank of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's army begins to encircle them, as it were, And the Israelites begin to grumble against Moses. Why didn't you just let us die in Egypt and serve the Egyptians? Right? It seems like there's no way out. Our backs are to the sea. Pharaoh's army is coming. And Moses says this to the people of God. He says, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you this day. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Third doctrinal instruction. Third way we're instructed here. While we are tried by God here below on earth, Christ is up above praying for us. While we are tried here below, Christ is up above praying for us. Christian, this is another thing that must not be missed. You picture the scene. Down below the mountain are the disciples rowing to the point of exhaustion. They're fearful. They're struggling. And all the while, during this narrative, Christ is up above them in the mountain. And Christ, unlike them, is not distressed. He's not ignorant of a single detail of their struggle. And He's in the mountain praying for them. He could see them, I mentioned, from the mountain as He then continued to make supplication for His Father. Or to His Father. Right? Psalm 139, even the darkness will not be dark to you. Right? The night will become like day. That's how it was here. The Lord Jesus, though it was dark to them, their darkness was not dark to Christ. He was well acquainted with their griefs. He knew their frames. And He went on praying for them before He came to them. And Christian, that is a picture of our great High Priest who sits in the heavens, who is Master of heaven and earth, who knows every situation of our lives, and yet He sits in heaven and He intercedes in our behalf. Christian, do you realize the reason your faith does not make utter shipwreck every day and every hour is because of the continual supplication and intercession of the Lord Jesus in your behalf? You remember Peter, Luke 22. One of the greatest... Maybe, maybe the greatest, minus Hebrews, maybe the greatest and most practical illustrations of Christ's high priestly ministry as our intercessor. Luke 22, when Peter's denial, his failure, 
was fast approaching. Jesus knew it was fast approaching. And Jesus comes to Peter and He says, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And what that means is very similar to Job. Satan has approached the Lord as it were and he has demanded, let me have Peter so that I can sift him like you would sift wheat and make his faith come out. Right? Leave everything in Peter except his faith. And Jesus does not say to Peter, but when Satan made that request, I said no. Rather, Jesus says, Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you turn, not if you turn, but when you turn, strengthen your brothers. Christian, did Peter fail? Yes. But did his faith utterly fail? No. Why? The intercessory prayers of Christ. That's what Jesus says. But I have prayed for you. If he didn't pray for Peter, as he's not praying for the world, he says in John 17, his faith would utterly fail. But because he prays, Peter, though you will sin, though you will fall, you will not utterly fall. And you will turn and you will strengthen the brothers. Christian, that's just as true of us as it is of the apostles. Christ is praying in your behalf. No matter how you feel, no matter what your emotions tell you, no matter how the darkness of your situation wants to make you forget that fact, Christ is praying. And He's always heard by His Father. Robert Murray McChain said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And yet, distance makes no difference. Christ is praying for me. That's what we need to remember in the midst of suffering and affliction and trial. Distance makes no difference. Christ is in heaven. I am on the earth, and yet His heart towards me is just as loving, just as saving as it was for His disciples here upon the earth. Number, number four, Number four, even despite the failings of our faith, the Lord continues to deal with us in loving kindness. Even despite the failings of our faith, the Lord continues to deal with us in loving kindness. We saw this with the feeding of the 5,000, and the same lesson is demonstrated here. You remember the feeding of the 5,000 after Philip fails miserably, right? Lord, where are we going to get enough bread to feed these people? After he fails miserably, what did the Lord do? He again, in condescending grace, showed Philip what he should have already known. And so also, we see the same thing happen again here. They're fearful, and yet he comes to them because they are his. He will buy them with his blood. And he says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Christian, isn't it a glorious thing that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful? 
that our failures and our skepticism of the Lord's abilities does not hinder the outpouring of divine mercies to us. He comes to them despite their fears and He calms their fears. Showing to them again in condescending mercy that I not only have authority over loaves and fish to feed a multitude, but I have authority over the winds and the sea so that they obey Me. Christian, praise God that He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor reward us according to our iniquities. From beginning to end, that's the Christian life. Sometimes we forget this. From beginning to end, the Christian life is the Lord Jesus dealing with us in grace. In the light of failures, He comes to us and He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And even when we succeed, when we do obey by the grace of God, the reward He gives to us is simply Christ crowning grace with grace. He always deals with His people according to undeserved grace as He demonstrates here. Even after a failed test, He says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And He welcomes them like He will later on welcome Peter after his denial. And Christian, it's the same with us that He comes to us despite our faithlessness. He comes to us in perfect faithfulness to His covenant. And He restores our soul And He reassures our hearts of His unchanging care and love for His people. That brings us to our application this morning. Having considered the text, having been instructed regarding the theme of trials, how God deals with us, how we ought to view those things, let's now turn to brief application for us. I want to speak to three groups of people this morning. Number one, I want to speak to the unbeliever here. And then secondly and thirdly, I'll speak to two different types of Christians in two different types of situations you might find yourself in. Number one application. I want to speak to you if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever. You're not believing the Gospel. You're not trusting Christ. I want to make sure that you go away this morning accurately applying this text to your own soul. I know as a preacher of the Gospel... I probably feel it more than you do. There is always the risk of misunderstanding. And specifically, there is the risk in preaching the free grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ that He has to His people. Things that the people of God need to hear and be assured of. There is always the risk that you could be here an unbeliever and you could mistake those comforts as being yours. But I want you to listen to me. I know you are no stranger to hardship and affliction. You live in this same fallen world Christians live in. This veil of tears that is filled with hardship and affliction. You know what it is to be scared. What it is to be grieved. And you might be here and you've heard what I've said from this story. And you might take it as the generic promise that God is therefore always with you and will always be with you. Perhaps you're thinking right now about previous times in your life 
when darkness was upon you and you feared for your life, a significant struggle, you feared for your future, and you're realizing that, well, here I am today and I've been spared. And you're thinking to yourself, therefore, certainly what the preacher is saying is true for me and has proven true for me. Surely I am one who has been blessed by the favor of God. Listen to me if that's you. I do not deny for a moment that God has shown you much, much mercy. God shows mercy to sinners in this world every single day. He causes His sun to shine and His rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He heals and restores even His enemies. But hear me, that is not the test by which we know God is for us. All the temporal mercies in the world, in this life, do not prove that you are a child of God on your way to heaven. They do not prove that you have that fellowship with God that is in His Son that leads to eternal life. Here's what they do prove, those mercies that you've experienced. What they do prove is that God is merciful and gracious and patient, and He demonstrates His kindness and patience even to His enemies in order to lead them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, the one way the Bible tells us we come to an assurance that God is for us is not by interpreting the events of our lives and what has happened or what hasn't happened to us, but rather by taking God at His written Word and believing in the Son whom He has sent. You must close with Christ if you are to have the comforts of this passage. If you want to think that the hardships of this life are not just precursors to a greater judgment to come, and you want to know that these are actually the messengers of divine love for my good to conform me to the image of Christ in order to prepare me for glory in heaven, there is no way to have that except for to close with Christ and believe in Christ. Only those who bow the knee in submission and who embrace with empty hands the cross of Christ as the only reason that we can be reconciled to God and brought to glory, only they are the ones who know the comforts of saving fellowship in this life and the bliss of never-ending, never-interrupted peace in the life to come. And so if that's you, come to Christ. There's nothing hindering you. The call of the Gospel is indiscriminate to sinners. The worst of sinners can apply to Christ this very moment and know what it is to have peace with God and to be reconciled and to have the hope of eternal life. Do not let your soul be deceived because of present mercies. There is coming a day for all of us in this room in which we will all face life's most certain storm. 
the inescapable storm of death. And the Bible tells you that there's tells us that there's two ways to die. We either die in our sins or we die in Christ. And to die in Christ is the only way to die safely. Why would you perish? Christ calls to you to receive mercy. Cast your soul upon Him and be saved from sin. Secondly and thirdly, I want to speak to the Christian. First of all, I want to speak to the prospering Christian. Okay? The prospering Christian. If you read Ecclesiastes, you will realize there is a time and there is a season for everything. The disciples, you think about it earlier in this chapter, were at the banquet of Christ's table. And only hours later, they are sailing through the storm. Christian, I want to speak to you, Christian, who's in a time of relative peace and prosperity. Prepare your heart now and cultivate your walk with God for the storm that will no doubt come. Oftentimes, trials follow upon the heels of times of peace. And that's for our good, by the way, Christian. It would not be good for us if we experienced nothing but just peace and joy and nothing ever goes wrong in our lives. Because trials have a way of keeping our hearts from growing complacent and dull. But here's the thing about seasons of prosperity and peace. It can be so easy to take the rests that the Lord gives His people. And the Lord does give His people rests. But it can be so easy to take the rests that the Lord gives us and abuse them into becoming times of falling asleep. I was talking to a brother about a book this this, uh, last prayer meeting. I'm going to steal the example he gave to me, so I'll give credit there. The Lord often in grace gives us seasons of peace and rest. And what do we do? We just think, let's park here. And let's take off the armor. Let's put our weapons to the side. Set the Word of God aside. Let's grow undisciplined and let's vacation for a while. Just like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, we, we sleep instead of watching and praying. Christian, don't be fooled. We do give thanks to God for seasons of prosperity and blessing and abundance, but we dare not, when the Lord brings us to a brief rest stop, we dare not therefore trade in our military uniform for civilians' clothes. The war doesn't end this side of glory. We dare not do that lest we be caught unaware. Christian, in season of prosperity, it's good to remind ourselves what is the common lot of all Christians. And to remember that soon trial and suffering and hardship will be my lot. Use this time to train for battle. Use this time to walk closely with God in the peaceful season so that when the trial comes, you don't have to look far to find Him. Secondly, second category of Christian. Lastly, I want to speak to the suffering Christian. 
Some of you are in times of peace. Others of you are right now under the heavy hand of God. I want to speak to you who are weary, who are worn out, who are tired, who are pressed. Hear the overarching main point of this story. The Lord will come to you. The Lord will come to you. I know it feels like an eternity when the hand of God is heavy upon you. And when you feel crushed and gutted by trial. But Christian, God's Word cannot fail. God cannot go back on His Word. And He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus has said, He is the Good Shepherd. That He holds us in His hand And if we are held in the Father's hand, and none can snatch us from that hand. And so Christian, bank in the midst of suffering and trial, bank on the precious promises of God. Let them be your food. Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word do I hope. The Puritans would speak of the promises of God. They they gave the illustration that the promises of God to God's children are like a bag of gold coins that God comes to each of His children and He just turns it upside down and He dumps it out and He says to His child in His affliction, here you are, take as many as you want and as many as you need. That's what the promises of God are for the child of God. Christian, remember His faithfulness. In who else dare we put our hope? Wait for His coming. He has not lied to you. He may tarry. He may wait for reasons known only to Himself, but He will not abandon the work of His hands. He will come to the suffering saint, perhaps when we least expect, And He will come to us warming our hearts with the assurance, it is I. Do not be afraid. Christian, the Lord will come to you. The Lord will be your help. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You'd write Your Word upon our hearts. Prepare us for the storms that You have ordained for us. Lord, some of us have walked through storms that are greater than what we expected we would have walked through at this point in our lives. Deep grief. And yet, Lord, how how it gives us assurance when we see on the other side how faithful You have been to bring us through. And often when we felt like You would not return, You warmed our hearts. You convinced us of Your care, Your fatherly love, even Your discipline. And yet there are others of us, Lord, who You have ordained trials that are more difficult than what we expect will come. We pray that You would prepare all of us. We pray that we would give thanks for every day of peace, and prosperity, every day of health, every day of freedom and safety, 
But Father, that we would hold those things loosely and that we would never forget that we are engaged in warfare against the principalities and powers that wage war against our soul. Father, we pray that You would keep us from tarrying and loitering upon our heavenly journey. That we would be joyous and happy and yet sober-minded. Father, help us to remember Your trustworthiness when things come upon us and Your hand weighs and presses down upon us. We pray that we would not doubt Your character. That we would not doubt Your purpose and Your wisdom. That we would embrace trials with even gladness and rejoicing knowing that they produce patience. That they produce maturity. Father, give us endurance, we pray. We pray again for those who are outside of Christ. We know that Your Word does not promise us a peaceful life here in this life, and yet it does promise us the peace of Your fellowship, the comfort of Your love. We pray that they would come out of darkness and into light and know the love of Christ. That they would know the assurance of no condemnation before You, Father, because of the shed blood and resurrection of Your Son. We pray that You would knock out from under them, as it were, anything that they are leaning upon and depending upon, and that they would feel their utter need for Christ. Glorify Yourself, Father. Be with our people. Pray for our congregation. Pray that You would strengthen us as a Christian testimony in our individual lives, in our families, in our work. Help us to be faithful evangelists. Lord, even in this vein, that we would suffer well before others. That we would have peace that others find unexplainable. And that we would be ready to give a word for the hope that is within us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to walk in integrity. Help us to walk in sincerity and honesty and consistency. We pray that we would all grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, bless us, we pray. Conform us from one degree of glory to the next. We know that You will do it. You will complete that which You have begun at the day of Christ Jesus. We pray that now and until that day You would further the work that You have begun. Progress us in faith. Progress us in usefulness. Progress us in courage and boldness for the cause of Christ to be soldiers who when we enter Your presence would hear that we fought the battle well. That we would be found to be faithful servants. Father, bless us we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.